This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, March 6, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. New anti-corruption legislation unveiled by Democrats in Congress directly contradicts the First Amendment rights of speech and association, in addition to handing the executive branch more control over elections. Luke Wachab of the Institute for Free Speech discusses what's in the bill and the challenges it poses to free political expression. H.R. 1. Describe it. Boy, that's a tough one. Uh, It's a massive bill. It's nearly 600 pages long. Uh, It makes really big changes to voting rights, ethics laws, and it creates a lot of new political speech laws. And it's really that third part that has us at the Institute for Free Speech very concerned. Uh, The bill creates new categories of regulated speech. It significantly expands existing regulations. Uh, It brings a lot of regulations for TV and radio onto the internet, uh, which is a space that has been lightly regulated for very good reasons for a very long time. It also radically changes the Federal Election Commission, taking it from a six-member bipartisan agency to a five-member agency under control of the president. Uh, And if all that wasn't enough, it also has a program to subsidize politicians' campaigns with tax dollars. Now, given the way that this president talks about the media and about his political enemies, why on earth are Democrats pushing this particular uh, change? It's a good question. I think there are a lot of things in the bill that would help candidates like Trump. Uh, I think that public subsidy program would be very good for celebrity candidates uh, who are able to get a lot of media attention, who have high name recognition because the way it works is it takes small donations to candidates and matches it with tax dollars. Um, So a candidate like Trump, who has a lot of name appeals, particularly early on, I think would benefit massively from a program like that. I think it's also very dangerous to give the president more control over the agency that enforces campaign finance laws. And in that section, I think the drafters of the bill are basically betting that a Democrat will win in 2020 because they have set the timing of that provision up such that it'll be the president that wins that election, not this president, uh, who will have the first chance to uh, nominate uh, members of that five-member new FEC that's going to potentially be susceptible to partisan abuse or at least um, you know, undue influence on the part of the president. So I think um, some of it uh, they're aware of, and they're just hoping that they're going to ride out this storm. They'll get more, uh, you know, they'll get a Democratic president in office who they will trust to make these appointments, uh, and then they're going to roll. But I think it's a it's a big risk on their part uh, if a plan like this were to get into law to give powers like this really to any president is very dangerous. Uh, and giving their their clear concerns about this president's attitudes towards the media, towards his critics, towards free speech, uh, this would not be the time to give the federal government a lot more power over campaigns and advocacy organizations. Now, I know that the Institute for Free Speech wrote a letter to members of Congress uh, who would be in charge of making decisions about the advancement of this legislation, but the American Civil Liberties Union, in, in a very detailed letter, Uh, also said of the Disclose Act, which we've seen before, 
Uh, but the ACLU said that the Disclose Act, the inclusion of the Disclose Act here, strikes the wrong balance between the public's interest in knowing who supports or opposes candidates for office and the vital associational privacy rights guaranteed by the First Amendment. Yeah, the, the ACLU letter I thought was really on point on a lot of the major free speech concerns in the bill. Um, you know, they talk about there are some things that the ACLU likes in the bill and the other aspects, whether it's voting rights or ethics. Uh, but they they did very forcefully say they think it that they think HR one unconstitutionally restricts Americans' free speech rights. They think it harms public discourse. They think it will have the effect of silencing important voices. Uh, I would agree with all of that. And yes, the point you make about the Disclose Act being something we've seen before, uh, under the Roberts Court in particular, there have been a lot of notable advancements for free political speech, the Citizens United ruling being one of them, one of the most famous ones. Uh, And every time, you know, there's a push in the direction of free speech, the people who are opposed to that come back with new ideas to kind of push back. Those have not really had success on the federal level. Uh, so HR one really cobbles them all together, and it's kind of the you know the empire strikes back, uh, where we've had all this positive movement on free speech over the last ten years or so, uh, and now they want to really claw a lot of that back. And so it was good to see the ACLU come out and say what I think every free speech expert. Uh, would agree to, which is that this massive bill, which has so many complex provisions, there are a lot of things in here that uh, you know potentially threaten free speech rights, if not outright banning certain forms of speech. Now, they uh, the legislation would broaden a lot of definitions of what constitutes electioneering communication. Is that right? Yeah, it really um, it really moves us away from the system we've had. Um, you know, since the 1970s, ads that are calling for the election or defeat of candidates have been regulated. Then you had McCain-Feingold in the early 2000s that expanded that so that uh, ads that name candidates in the period before an election are regulated if they uh, are if a certain amount of money is spent on those ads and if a large enough uh, number of voters in that district uh, can see the ad, then those are also regulated. What HR1 would move us towards is a much broader and much vaguer standard. Uh, the, the standard for regulating communications in much of the bill is called PASO, P-A-S-O, for promote, attack, support, or oppose. Uh, and those are actually relatively vague terms. It's really not clear, you know, if, if a group ran an ad uh, calling on citizens to, and it said, you know, contact Senator so-and-so and tell him to take action uh, on a specific bill or issue. Uh, you know, if it's, a, if it's an office holder who is publicly known as an opponent of the bill that the ad's advocating for, would that constitute an attack on that office holder? You know, if it's a bill that they're associated with, if you're running an ad telling Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to keep fighting for the Green New Deal, uh, is that promoting her? Uh, A lot of this isn't clear. And so, you know, were something like this to pass, there would be a lot of litigation before we would really have a sense of what's regulated. Uh, So we're moving away from this effort to regulate efforts to sway elections and really big spenders uh, down to, you know, much smaller groups and much more issue-focused speech. Uh, And the Supreme Court in the past has been 
very, uh, you know, very concerned about limiting how far political speech regulations can reach. So that's where a lot of the constitutional concerns come in with such a broad standard where any ad that, you know, the new FEC determines promotes, attacks, supports, or opposes a candidate is going to force these groups to uh, register with the government, file reports, potentially uh, report some of their donors. And in those reports that these groups have to file, they're called uh, campaign-related disbursement reports. Um, they have to indicate whether they are supporting or opposing the office holder they name. And that just doesn't make sense if you have a, a neutral ad that's just naming the office holder that people should contact about an issue. Those groups aren't supporting or opposing that office holder. Uh, and yet this law would kind of force them to take a side. And I think that speaks to how so much of this uh, this stuff is motivated, not by an effort to root out corruption, uh, but rather to make lists of supporters and opponents so that you can kind of divide and conquer your opposition. Before we started recording, we mentioned the famous Supreme Court case NAACP v. Alabama, which essentially said once you compel people to make their support for uh, certain causes known, that you, you, you chill speech. I may be mangling the actual finding of the case there, but but the idea is that you should have some sort of privacy in the in the causes that you support. Yeah, that's uh, a really landmark case. It's a unanimous decision, uh, and yeah, when you go back to that era in history, 1950s Alabama, a state government that was beholden to the ideas of Jim Crow, um, when they went after uh, the NAACP's membership list, uh, you know. People understood what the purpose of that was for, what the result of that would be, that information, whether it was officially made public or not, would have gotten into certain people's hands, and it probably would have resulted in harassment and reprisals against members of the NAACP. The court recognized this. Uh, however, its ruling was not limited to groups like the NAACP in times like the Jim Crow South of the 50s. Uh, it asserted that any time that the government uh, is attempting to, you know, expose uh, your association with groups that are working on controversial issues, that that uh, poses a major restraint on free speech rights. Unfortunately, uh, in the intervening, you know, half century since that decision, we've seen more and more states and localities pass laws that we think violate. Uh, the NAACP v. Alabama holding. Uh, and so far, courts have not been very forceful in defending that precedent. So H.R. 1 uh, would take that step federally where uh, were to be passed, a lot of advocacy nonprofits that speak about issues, not elections, would nonetheless be forced to reveal the names and home addresses of many of their supporters, just like a PAC is required to do. Um, so, you know, were that to happen on the federal level, that would be another thing that would be subject to probably litigation. Uh, and at some point, the court is going to have to step in and clarify whether NAACP v. Alabama is still the law uh, or whether governments can force you to report on your associations with advocacy groups. How much of this do you, do you view is driven by the election of 2016 and these, the, the ways in which uh, people feel that that election, well, it didn't go exactly as planned in, in terms of uh, who had what influence and uh, in, what you know 
Russian interference was sort of the big headline of that election. Yeah, and I, I think that certainly p- played a role uh, in determining you know what the specific content of this is. We saw in 2017 uh, the Honest Ads Act, they called it, was proposed as a response to uh, the the Russian meddling in elections or a purported response. Um, that bill was sponsored by Senators Mark Warner, Amy Klobuchar, John McCain, uh, and did not pass, um, but has since been basically reincorporated into H.R. 1. I think the idea that the internet is in need of new regulation uh, is a response to what some people feel happened in 2016. Uh, and by that, I don't mean that Russian groups didn't spend money on online ads. They certainly did, but it was a really small amount. And I don't know that it's at all clear how effective a lot of those messages were when you have like a meme of Hillary as Satan fighting Trump as Jesus or something. You know, I don't know how many people were going to vote for Hillary until they saw that and changed their mind or how many people, you know, weren't going to vote, but then they got motivated to go to the polls. Uh, I, I don't know that the effectiveness of that has uh, really been demonstrated. And as a result, it's, I think, really risky to you know look to have wide-ranging restrictions on Americans' use of the internet to speak with other Americans. Uh, and that's what this bill, H.R. Uh, 1, would do. That's what the Honest Ads Act would have done. And some state-level versions uh, did pass in Maryland and Washington. And those bills were so poorly written that Google stopped selling political ads in those states. They said they did not know how to – they couldn't comply with the law. Um, So these proposals are not terribly well thought out. Uh, They are oftentimes, uh, yes, a a knee-jerk response to the results of the last election that people didn't like. That being said, uh, had Hillary Clinton won in 2016, you know, she talked a lot about wanting to overturn Citizens United. I wonder uh, why. Her campaign. <laughs> uh, of course, Citizens United, a case about a movie that was criticizing Hillary Clinton. Um, but so, you know, it's possible we would have seen, you know, bills introduced on this anyway. But I think certainly a lot of the messaging around it, a lot of the urgency around it, and the shift in focus away from, you know, big money to these sort of nefarious groups on the internet, I think is very much a reaction to 2016. Uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, one of few stalwarts on the uh, free speech uh, issue, has said it's not going anywhere. But by the same token, it's you know it's a massive piece of legislation and you assume that uh, it's not going away. Yeah, you know, you it, yes, this is not going to pass with a Republican Senate and Trump in the White House. Um But this is a preview of where the Democratic Party, at least, or large portions of the Democratic Party, if you look at how many members of of the House have signed on as co-sponsors to H.R. 1, you know, this is essentially them showing you what they want to do. Um, And, you know, I think it's a sign of where things could go in the future. And none of those indications are, are good. And so I think it's very important that people you know, treat this bill very seriously, especially because a lot of these restrictions on free speech are sort of subtle, nefarious red tape. Um, You know, it takes some time to help people understand what those threats are. Uh, And, you know, in the long run, I think you really need a a strong bipartisan coalition in support of free political speech and in support of privacy and association. Uh, And so I don't think you can really take much comfort if H.R. 1 you know, were to fail on a party line vote, uh, that's still a problem that in a two-party system, uh, there's as much support for this uh, course of action as there is so far. 
Luke Wachov is a policy analyst at the Institute for Free Speech. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 